Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would grant us understanding today. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. And we pray this not only for the adults in here, but we pray it for the children as well, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of Christ. We pray for their salvation. We pray for many uh, seeds to be planted today that you will tend to, that you will draw a harvest from. And Father, we pray above all that Christ would be glorified in this time as we study your word. We pray that you would show us our great need for him. We pray that you would show us the incredible work that he has already done in us, but also show us the work that is yet to be done, all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the ninth chapter of John. We're going to be continuing in our study of the ninth chapter of John today. It's been a few weeks, so uh, you know we'll be reminded as we go through this of uh, of what has transpired up to this point. But we'll be looking at John chapter nine, verses twenty-four to thirty-eight. John chapter four, uh, John chapter nine, verses twenty-four to thirty-eight. You know, one of the more interesting subjects that was touched on and uh, that, that I kind of studied when I was getting my Master of Divinity degree with an emphasis in Christian apologetics, was the field of philosophy known as epistemology. Now, that's probably a word that most people are unfamiliar with, but it's a subject that needs to make a serious comeback in our culture because epistemology deals with the subject of knowledge. Specifically, it's the study of how we know what we know. The term is actually derived, even though it's a kind of new word, uh, the, the term is derived from two Greek words, episteme, which means uh, knowledge in Greek, and logos, which is often translated reason in Greek. And so if you put those two words together, epistemology is the reason we know something. So that's what epistemology is in a nutshell. And the reason I say this subject is so incredibly relevant and so interesting, and the reason I say I hope it makes a comeback is because in our postmodern culture, epistemology is almost completely absent. Uh, in fact, one of, the, one of the central teachings of postmodernism is that we don't know anything. Well, how do you know that you don't know anything unless you know something? It, it doesn't make any sense. It, it's self-contradicting, and yet you see it absolutely everywhere because postmodernism denies that there is absolute knowledge, although it absolutely has knowledge that there's no such thing as absolute knowledge. Again, it makes no sense, uh, but that makes all knowledge that a person might have, including knowledge of, of truth, relative, according to postmodernism. For the record, there is no such thing as relative truth. One of my seminary professors uh, would say that he had a $10 bill waiting in his pocket that he'd had there for 50 years if somebody could give him an example of relative truth. And people did try. There's no such thing as relative truth. If you want to try me after service, you're free to. There's no such thing as relative truth. And yet, the idea that truth is relative is what's at the foundation of the idea that there's such a thing as your truth and my truth. Those are nonsensical terms. There's no such thing as your truth. There's no such thing as, as my truth. Those terms are meaningless. There is only 
the truth. Truth isn't determined by a person's perspective. That's part of postmodernism too, that truth is determined by your perspective. Now, if you want to argue that position, you'd have to say that it's only your perspective that truth is determined by perspective. No, truth is what corresponds with reality. Truth is, let's imagine there's a, a video camera in here recording everything, and it, it, you can see everything that's going on. Well, regardless of your perspective, what went on is what went on. That's what truth is. And if your perspective doesn't align with reality, your perspective is wrong. So you can't call that your truth. It's just what is the truth and what is not the truth. And yet, if you're familiar with our educational system, you, you know that there are university professors with PhDs and advanced doctorate degrees out there who are swept into this idea that truth is relative. Well, how did that come about? That's, that's where epistemology, uh, the study of how we know, the reason that we know what we know, or what we think we know, uh, becomes really interesting because there are a lot of factors that go into convincing us that something is true. But if academic truth is often deemed to be relative, and it is, how much more in our day and age is spiritual truth seen as being just completely relative. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about why that might be, why spiritual truth is almost kind of just put off in its own category when it comes to epistemology. And I think that the reason that this is done is because people uh, are aware of the fact that there are so many different beliefs and, and worldviews out there, uh, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, and most people just don't want to be offensive and say that this religion or that religion is wrong. So they settle the issue by saying, well, all religions are right to those who believe in them. After all, I mean, if I say that Christianity is the only true religion, am I not going to be deemed, uh, you know, a bigot? Uh, am I not going to be called uh, an Islamophobe or a racist? You know, I, I will be. I will be. But as we continue in our study of John today, we'll see that one of the main themes of John chapter 9 is epistemology. You'll have so many people that we'll see that'll be saying, we know this and that, or uh, I know such and such, or at least they think they know all these things. Uh, we've seen, uh, just to review like where we are in, in the text, we've seen Jesus heal a blind man, and he did it on the Sabbath. Which, of course, once again has caused a commotion with the Pharisees. Uh, when the man's neighbors are made aware of the fact that he can see, instead of rejoicing with the man, instead of celebrating the fact that he's had his sight, his sight given to him, they bring him before the Pharisees. Uh, and, and the Pharisees decide to go with the argument that this man could not have really been born blind. So they call his parents in to testify. And if you remember what his parents said, they said in verses 20 and 21, we know, there's that word, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Two things that they know. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. So today we'll see the Pharisees claim 
to know certain things in the passage that we're going to be looking at. And the man who was formerly blind will also claim to know some things, but he'll also confess to not knowing certain things. This is really, for somebody who studied epistemology, this is a fascinating epistemological dialogue. It's a dialogue centered on what people know, or at least what they think they know, and how they know what they think they know. But the underlying question here, from a Christian worldview, is really, how do you know what you know about spiritual truth? How do you know what is spiritually true? And the answer, which is the point of this passage, is that knowledge of spiritual truth is only given by Jesus opening our spiritual eyes. But sin prevents spiritual knowledge from being sought or discovered. Knowledge of spiritual truth is only given by Jesus opening our spiritual eyes. But sin hinders and prevents spiritual knowledge from being sought or discovered. So with the parents having refused to stand up for their formerly blind son, the Pharisees will now turn their questioning back to the formerly blind man. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. John tells us, So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now we have to see that the the working hypothesis of the Pharisees that the man was never truly blind to begin with, it, it, was, it was debunked by the parents. That theory, that hypothesis, was completely you know, shot down by his parents' testimony. They, they testified that he was blind, they, they, that he is their son, and they know that he was born blind. But how interesting and insulting, if you think about it for a second, that they had to call the parents in to testify of this. Because this is a man who was positioned outside of the temple, where people walked by all the time, where these Pharisees would have walked by all the time. And yet they don't know him. They don't recognize him. They have no idea who he is or what his history is, which tells us that they've been ignoring this guy for years and years and years. If they would have been mindful of the destitute, they would have recognized him for themselves. They would have known his condition for themselves. But the testimony of the parents has done the job, right? But while it's a sad indication of the, the, the awareness or lack of awareness and lack of compassion for the people that the Pharisees didn't know anything about this man, it's really kind of inconsequential that they don't know who he is and that they don't know his backstory. Not so with Jesus, however. It's inconsequential what they know about this blind, formerly blind man, but it's not inconsequential that they know nothing about Jesus. And they don't know anything about him either. That's what really gets revealed here in this passage. Because if they had known Jesus, they wouldn't have had all these questions about the blind man who was given sight by Jesus. They just would have believed. They would have known that it was possible with Jesus if they had known Jesus. 
So having heard the testimony of the man's parents, they turn to the blind man who was healed and they say, give glory to God. We know that this man, they're speaking about Jesus now, we know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus and calling him a sinner? They obviously don't know him. They, they, they even have the audacity to say that. We know, not we think, not it's our opinion. We know that this man is a sinner which, sinner, which reveals that they don't know anything about him at all. They don't know the first thing about him because Jesus is the only person to have lived who wasn't a sinner. So they couldn't have been more wrong in their knowledge or what they thought they knew. Now, when they say, give glory to God, that's kind of an interesting thing for them to say. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but what we need to, be, what we need to see is they seem to be referencing um, the book of Joshua. Uh, what, it's what Joshua said when, um, when Achan had taken uh, some, some spoils from Jericho uh, against God's prohibition. He had taken these, uh, these things for himself from Jericho, and, and God had specifically banned certain things from being taken in order that the Israelites would be prevented from coveting those things and, and making gods out of the things that were in Jericho. So then in Joshua 7.1, after Achan has done this, uh, we read that Achan took some things, uh, some of the things under the ban, Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. And then when we get to verse 18 of Joshua chapter 7, we read this. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord. There it is. Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Don't hide it from me. So by instructing the blind man to give glory to God, they're essentially demanding that he confess his sin, in the same way that Joshua demanded uh, that Achan confess his sin. So the Pharisees here are insinuating that the man and his parents had lied about him formerly being blind and now being healed. They're still denying it, despite the evidence, despite the testimony of the man's parents. And they're insisting that he confess and repent of the sin of, of making up this Elaborate story. The irony here is that this formerly blind man isn't the one who is not giving glory to God. It's the Pharisees who are avoiding giving God the glory. As they try to convince this man to deny his own story, his own testimony of what God had done in his life. Uh, they're saying, deny it. Deny what God has done which is to say, don't give God the glory. The Pharisees are the ones who need to give glory to God, not this man. So they claim to know that Jesus is a sinner, but the truth is they have nothing on Jesus except hatred. They just don't like him, but there's no evidence, there's no dirt they have on him. There's no reason to suspect that he's guilty of any sin. But they've kind of tipped their hand here because by saying this, they're saying that they know that only God could do what this man was saying Jesus has done. See, the, the, the right argument, that they, if, if they were in the right place and arguing for the, right, the truth here, their argument would go something like this. Number one, only God can heal the blind. Number two, Jesus healed the blind man. Therefore, the conclusion, Jesus must be God. That's the right argument. 
But the argument that the Pharisees are kind of relying on here goes something like this. Number one, only God can heal the blind. Number two, Jesus is a sinner. Therefore, the conclusion, if you claim that Jesus healed you, you weren't healed of blindness as you claim. But notice the emphasis of the second premise, which is the one they're wrong on. We know this man is a sinner. We know. As if that premise can't be challenged. Oh, yes, it can be. But that's what they think they know. Why, though? Why do they think that they know what they know about Jesus? It's because of pride. It's because of sin. Their, their pride, their, their sinful pride won't let them humble themselves to see the truth. And how does the man respond? Brilliantly. He says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now, you, just, you have to appreciate, if, if not love, just how honest this man is is about where he is with his knowledge and what he knows and what he doesn't know. He's not claiming to know something that he's not really sure about, that he hasn't figured out yet. That's a hard thing for people to do, isn't it? To admit that they don't know something. Because it's human nature not only to want to know, but it's human nature because of the flesh to want to boast in what we know. The flesh often takes this aspect of our nature where we we desire to know, uh, it takes it too far, making it hard for us to say those words, I don't know. But listen, friends, if you're ever confronted with a question about God or Jesus or the Bible or Christianity or anything to do with your faith, and you don't know, the best answer that you can give them is, I don't know. I'll go talk to my pastor about it and see if I can give you an answer, or I'll I'll read some books about it and see if I can give you an answer. It's a a legitimate way to to answer a question. And yet, it's the hardest way to answer a question. I understand. I understand how that is. But the formerly blind man kind of confesses here that he doesn't know a lot about Jesus. He's not claiming to know everything there is to know about Jesus. What he knew is that Jesus was the one who had changed him. He knew that Jesus had healed him. He knew that he once was blind and that he can see now. He knew that he had not sought Jesus. He knew that he hadn't asked Jesus for help. But he knew, and he knew that he knew, that Jesus had sought him and had healed him. Now, there's a really important principle for us to grasp in this story, and that's that if Jesus doesn't take the initiative and open our eyes, we remain in the dark. If Jesus doesn't take the initiative and open our spiritual eyes, open the eyes of our hearts, we will remain lost in the darkness. The way that we know any spiritual truth is really twofold. Number one, it's revealed in the Scriptures. All spiritual truth is revealed explicitly in the Scriptures. But secondly, we need to understand that our fallen minds require divine illumination in order for us to understand. In order for us to know, God must impart knowledge to us. Jesus has to open our eyes. That's to say that that nobody can, can know saving truth about God by reason or by intellect alone. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, 
A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Without the Spirit revealing the mind of God to us, the nature of God to us, the the truths about God to us, the truths about God to us are foolishness. God must impart that knowledge to us. Spiritual truth must be imparted by the Spirit of God. He's the one who gives us knowledge. He's the one who gives us understanding of the Scriptures to know and to understand spiritual truth. The way to remain spiritually blind, on the other hand, is to deny the limitations of our knowledge and to deny the limitations of our understanding. If you approach the Bible pridefully, if you come to it pridefully with the idea that you've already got it all figured out and you've, you've got all these unbiblical assumptions that you're going to be reading into the text, you're not going to learn and you're not going to know anything. So this man, what we see is that this man is actually completely unlike the Pharisees. He's humble. They're, they're prideful. He's humble and he's truthful about the limitations of his knowledge. And that's the position, friends, that we all must start with when it comes to God. After all, there is always, there is always more about God for us to learn, right? After all, he is infinite and we are finite. Can can something that's finite completely grasp what's infinite? No, we can't. So it's a wise position to start from, acknowledging our utter inability to know spiritual truth apart from God revealing himself to us and imparting spiritual truth to us. Make no mistake about it. This man is refusing to comply with what the Pharisees are demanding. He's refusing to go to agree with the verdict of the Pharisees that Jesus is a sinner. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to see that he figures out, because of their their probing, because he's being put to the fire here, kind of, he's going to figure out in just a minute here that Jesus actually isn't a sinner. He's going to grow in his knowledge of Jesus, but he'll do so because he recognizes and he's honest about the limitations of his knowledge. For now, though, he doesn't know. At this point, he's not sure if Jesus is a sinner or not. All he knows is that he once was blind and now he sees and that that's because of Jesus. To confess that it's not true as the Pharisees are asking him to do would be sinning. It would be lying. There is absolutely nothing in the world for him to own up to or for him to confess. Knowledge of spiritual truth is only given by Jesus opening our spiritual eyes But sin, as we see in the Pharisees, but sin prevents spiritual knowledge from being sought or discovered. So seeing this formerly blind man's refusal to comply with their demands, the Pharisees essentially try to go back to square one. Let's look at verses 26 to 29. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I already told you. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become disciples too, his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. 
So the Pharisees are kind of sticking with their argument here, even though it's been shot down, even though their argument has been blown to, to smithereens. The truth of the matter is, though, that sin is what is hindering them. They don't want to believe that Jesus actually healed this formerly blind man. So they ask this man again how Jesus healed him, and the man realizes immediately just how ridiculous this is, and he's quick to let him have it. To his credit, I might add, because they deserve it. They, they deserve the snark that he gives them. Because he knows as well as the Pharisees do that the Pharisees don't want to know what happened. So he mocks them. He mocks them in, re in response to their request that he basically start all over again, asking them jokingly, you do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And of course, the answer is no, no, they don't want to become Jesus' disciples. And he knows it. And if they were being honest with themselves, they'd know it too. But while the Pharisees have already demonstrated that their spiritual blindness was primarily a result of their hatred for God and their hatred of, of truth, here they demonstrate that there's a second reason for their spiritual blindness, and that is their loyalty to man-made traditions. Their loyalty to man-made traditions. Look, look what they say in verses 28 and 29. They think they're taking the high ground. They think that they're superior because they think that they are disciples of Moses. And, and apparently, in, in their minds, it would be better to be a disciple of Moses than to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, there are a lot of problems with that, right? And it's not that we can't learn anything from Moses. Of course we can learn plenty from Moses. But the irony here is that if they were really disciples of Moses, well, Moses believed in and wrote of Jesus too. He was a follower of Jesus, and thus Moses would judge the Pharisees for their unbelief. As Jesus said back in chapter 5, when Jesus was testifying about healing the crippled man on the Sabbath, Jesus said this, If you believed in Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, he's saying, you think you're disciples of Moses, you're not. Who's this Moses that you're following? The Moses of the Bible is the one who follows me and believes in me and testifies of me, is what he's saying. See, they claim to be disciples of Moses. Right after, by the way, you might notice, they claim to be children of Abraham in the previous chapter. Interesting. But they claim to be disciples of Moses even though they weren't even though they weren't. They, they weren't disciples of Moses for the same reason, by the way, that they weren't children of Abraham. That's because they didn't have the faith of Abraham or Moses. In fact, they worshiped a completely different God than Abraham and Moses did. And I realize that might sound strange, but the God that Abraham had and the God that Moses believed in and worshiped sent his only son to take on flesh, to live a sinless life, and to die a substitutionary death on behalf of everyone who believed in him. The God of the Pharisees did no such thing. The God of the Pharisees did not send his only son to redeem. So these men were not disciples of Moses. Whose disciples are they? They're the devil's disciples. They're the devil's disciples. Their religion was a religion that was really disguised by tradition. Now, that's not to say, by the way, that traditions are all necessarily bad. 
we're part of the Reformed tradition. Uh, the things that we do, we do because these are things that Reformed churches and congregations have been doing for 400 years now, 500 years now. We do this, it is part of a tradition, but these traditions are not an end in and of themselves. They're a means to an end. Richard Phillips notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, there is nothing wrong with godly traditions until they become an end in themselves as they tend to do, end quote. So the Pharisees, they claim to follow Moses, but they don't really. They follow a tradition. They're spiritually blinded, number one, by their pride, their, their hatred of Moses' as God, and they were spiritually blinded by their unwavering loyalty to the, to the traditions established by men over loyalty to God. They say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he is from. Again, that's a really interesting epistemological statement. Um, they deal with what the, the Pharisees know or what they think they know, or, or do they? Because if we compare what they say here to what they said back in chapter 7, verse 27, they said this. They said, we know where this man is from, speaking of Jesus. So which is it? Do they know where he's from, or, or do they not? And as we see here, the answer appears to depend on what they are trying to accomplish in the moment what their agenda was. What's interesting is not only that contradiction, but also consider that if they don't know where Jesus is from, if they don't know the origins of Jesus, how can they have already decided that Jesus must be a sinner? Their argument here is that they can't believe the teachings of Jesus because they don't know where he's from. Okay, well, let's see how the formerly blind man responds to this, because again, he responds brilliantly. Let's look at verses 30 to 33. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Do you see how having his feet put to the fire is increasing his understanding of Jesus? The blind man would have been somebody who was uneducated. They didn't have Braille. There really wasn't uh, any way for him to read all the books that the Pharisees would have read and things like that. But he's talking to the Pharisees in a way that demonstrates that he knows a lot more than they do here. In fact, you might even say he's, he's schooling them here. He's taking them to school. He mocks them and he's pointing out all the flaws of their argument. So he doesn't respect them. He doesn't fear them. He's not afraid uh, of them. He's not afraid to make it apparent to them and to everybody else that, that he knows something that they don't know. And he's right on the money. He's hit a bullseye here. First, he points out that the origin of Jesus is completely irrelevant to the discussion. It's, it's irrelevant to whether or not Jesus' teachings should be accepted. The question is, did he really heal the blind man? That's the only relevant issue here. Because if Jesus did, if Jesus did indeed heal him, that warrants paying very close attention to what Jesus 
teaches. What becomes clear here is that this man knows more about God than the Pharisees did. He says, we know that God does not hear sinners. May have been responding, uh, talking about them, referring to them there. He's right about that, by the way. Without a mediator between us and God, the cries of the wicked fall on deaf ears, and that mediator is Jesus. He's the only one qualified to function in that capacity because he alone is fully God and fully man. But the man's argument continues as he notes that nobody has ever been healed of blindness since the world began. And that's, by the way, still true to this day, that, that people who are born blind, there's just nothing that we can do to, to, to fix that and to, to give them sight, at least not yet. And, and, and since, his argument continues, and since only God could do such a thing, Jesus must not be a sinner. Logic gets the win. Logic wins the day. Logic reveals how foolish how prideful, how sinful these Pharisees are. But what rich, deep, and, and, and blessed spiritual truth has been revealed to this man as his feet have been put to the fire. See, he's not inhibited by sin. He's not inhibited by tradition. He's not inhibited by a, a hunger for power. And so he realizes as he's thinking through this, as they're asking more questions, he realizes that Jesus is not a sinner. Instead, he sees, he clearly sees, both physically and spiritually, that God's work was being accomplished through Christ. How does he know what he knows? Because Jesus opened his eyes. That's how. Both physically and spiritually. If Jesus hadn't opened his eyes, he would not have arrived at this conclusion, right? If Jesus hadn't opened his eyes, he never would have arrived at this incredible and important conclusion that Jesus is not a sinner. Consider this guy's wisdom. He's, un he's uneducated, but he has wisdom. The scriptures instruct us in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, Do not Answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. And he's putting that into practice here. That's exactly how he responds to the Pharisees. In an execution of wisdom that can only come from God, he proved that the Pharisees were just complete fools. See, the fool isn't somebody who's just uneducated, these, and wise people aren't people who have a degree or you know, some kind of fancy title after their name. So who are the foolish? The foolish are those who claim to be wise and yet are unaware or refuse to acknowledge their lack of knowledge. That's exactly what we see in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where Paul writes of the unregenerate man, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That describes the Pharisees to a T, does it not? Because they have exchanged the glory of the God of Moses for a lesser God of their own liking, a lesser God who 
aligned with their traditions. As surely as this formerly blind man could not be shaken from his belief that Jesus had healed him, friends, let us also refuse to be shaken from testifying and and claiming to know what Jesus has done for each one of us. What has he done for us? Well, for those who have repented and believed in him, he's taken their sin and he's taken their shame upon himself and he has reconciled the believer once and for all to God. But he is transforming us through the renewing of our minds more and more into the likeness of Christ. Don't be afraid to testify of that. Don't let anybody convince you that that's not true. The formerly blind man's argument really amounts to this. This miracle, the fact that Jesus did this, gives us every reason in the world to listen to what he says, to listen to what he claims. They give us sufficient reason to pay very, very close attention to Jesus because Jesus has just done something that nobody in the history of the world has ever done. This man was physically and spiritually blind. But now he sees with amazing clarity. These Pharisees could could physically see, but they remained completely lost, completely blind in the dark. They hated the light of Christ. And like cockroaches and, and insects that scatter when you're out in the garden and you pick up a stone and they just run every which way, the Pharisees are scattering they don't, want to, they don't want to pay attention to the light. They don't want to be exposed to the light that this formerly blind man is now shining directly on them. And so let's see what they do in verse 34. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you're teaching us? So they put him out. See, instead of seeing the truthfulness of this formerly blind man's arguments, And instead of considering the claims of Christ in light of this miracle, they excommunicate the man. They they cast him out. They kick him out from the synagogue. Now, there are legitimate reasons for excommunication. There are legitimate reasons for, for kicking somebody out of a church fellowship. It's one of the primary functions of the church, actually, believe it or not. The church that doesn't exercise discipline on members who continue in unrepentant sin doesn't care for the members and they aren't faithful to God. The Belgic Confession, which is one of the great confessions that was born out of the Protestant Reformation, says this of the true church. It says the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. There are three of them. Number one, the church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. Number two, It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. And number three, it practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it continues, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. End quote. And we should understand, however, that 
excommunication does serve a legitimate purpose. Church discipline does serve a legitimate purpose. And that purpose is obedience to God, exercising obedience to God, and love for the sinner. Excommunication, church discipline, isn't a weapon to hold over people to to punish them with. It's a means of demonstrating love. It's a means of showing concern for one who has gone astray from the Lord and refuses to return. But that's not what the Pharisees are doing here as they excommunicate this man, as they kick him out. They don't love this man. They're doing this not because they love him. They're doing this because they hate him. Look at what they say to him. You were born entirely in sins and you're teaching us? That's a hateful thing to say. It, it does seem, by the way, that they're acknowledging his healing and that they're, they're blaming him for his former condition of blindness by saying you were born entirely in sins. Well, how do you know that? Because he was blind in their minds. That's what they're thinking. Their purpose in excommunicating him isn't to restore him to the fellowship of the saints. That's, that's one of the purposes, is, is restoring, not just kicking somebody out, but we kick people, you know, you, you exercise church discipline for the sake of restoring. That's not their purpose here. Their purpose is to destroy this man's life. They're doing it to maintain their power and to silence any opposition. The Pharisees make this move to ensure that the fellowship that this man has with anybody in the community is not restored. They just want him silenced. And taking a stand against the unbelief of these Pharisees proves to be something that was very, very costly for this man. Taking a stand for Christ, friends, you need to know this, taking a stand for Christ against the world will always prove to be costly in one way or another. But it's worth it. And this man knows it. I I pray that you would know it too. He's cast out of the synagogue. This man, he's he's now been rejected by how many people? In, in, In just a few verses, he's been rejected by his friends. He's been rejected by his neighbors. He's been rejected by his family. He's been rejected by his religious leaders. He's been rejected by his entire nation. But he hasn't been rejected by Christ. Let's look at verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is, now the one, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Do you see once again who does the seeking? It's Jesus who does the seeking. As he becomes aware of the excommunication of this formerly blind man, Jesus seeks him. He finds him and he ministers to him as the good shepherd that he is. He came to further grow the faith of this new convert. That's why he came to him. As a new convert, this man knew some things about Jesus. He knew that he'd been healed by Jesus. He knew that Jesus was a prophet, as we saw back in verse 17. And as his faith was was put to the fire, 
in this trial by the Pharisees, the man came to understand that Jesus was from God and that he wasn't a sinner, but he still had things to know and learn about Jesus. And in order to instruct this man further in who Jesus is, Jesus asks him what can only be seen as the most, the single most important question of all time. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Of course, that's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, which we just saw. By the way, that is still the most important question of all time. Jesus asked this question to help the man. It's it's out of love for the man that he asks this question. And I ask the same question of every one of you today for the same reason, out of a desire to help you, out of of love and concern for you. It's, It's a question that every one of you will have to answer for. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Why is this question so important? Because it has everything to do with a person's salvation. Everything. Jesus had helped the man physically, but it would have been very unloving of him to help the man physically and yet leave him unhelped spiritually. Now, if you think about it, there are a lot of charities and a lot of missions out there that do a lot of great work. And charities and missions are a wonderful thing. But if they do not press a person to consider this question, they may be very humanitarian, uh, you know, charities and missions, but they are not helping a person in their area of greatest need. What good is a mission that digs a well for a foreign village and yet doesn't tell them about the living water that can be found in Christ? What good is a charity that fills the stomachs of hungry people and yet does not point them to the bread of life? Not only does this question press us to consider the issue of salvation, but it forces us to see that there is only one means of salvation, and that is found by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ alone. See, the world would have us believe that there are, you know, countless roads to God, that everybody, uh, you know, has their own way to God. Many roads leading to the same destination, but the Bible teaches us that there is only one. There's only one way, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is salvation in no one else, Peter preached. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Do you believe in the Son of Man? See, there are no excuses and there are no substitutes for believing in Jesus. When, when you see all that this man has suffered, just in one chapter, all the things that he's done, you have to see that without answering this one question with the one right answer, which is yes, it was all for nothing. He had obeyed Jesus, right? When, when Jesus told him to wash off in the pool that was called Siloam, he asked no questions and he obeyed promptly. Still, he has to answer this question. That, that brings up an important subject for us. You might have done something in obedience to God, but you still have to answer this question. This man had a great deal of respect for Jesus. He had a great appreciation for Jesus. And still, he had to answer this question. 
He argued convincingly against the Pharisees and earned as much hatred from them uh, as an enemy of, uh, you know, as, as their enemies that Jesus had. But still, he had to answer this question. He had this fantastic testimony of what Jesus had done for him, but still, he had to answer this question. He'd lost everything, even though he didn't have very much to begin with, which is why he was begging. But he still had to answer this question. See, this question is for people who have gone to church all your lives. It's for people who have responded to altar calls. It's for people who have prayed the sinner's prayer, whatever that might be. This question is for people not only who have gone to church all their lives, but it's for people who have never gone to church. This question is for pastors and pastors' wives and pastors' kids. It's for elders, it's for deacons, and it's for those who aren't. It's for people who lead us in singing worship. It's for Sunday school teachers. It's for people who are young. It's for people who are elderly. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Of course, that's referring to Jesus himself. You must know that if you don't deal with this question now, you will deal with it later on. And there are only two, answer, two answers to this question. There's yes and there's no. There's no in between. See, if you avoid it and you, you just kick the can down the road, that's saying no. If you postpone it, the answer is no. The sooner you deal with this question, the better off you will be. But answer it truly knowing that God sees your heart. God knows the truth. God knows our thoughts. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, some of you might be thinking to yourselves, I know what the right answer should be. I know what I'm supposed to say. And yet, I'm not sure if I can really say that I believe in the way that I should. And if that's you, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for your awareness of your lack of belief because he's given you somebody to emulate here. The formerly blind man was in your shoes and instead of answering the question, he does the wise thing and he asks for help. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And as Jesus reveals his identity to the man, you got to see what the man's response is. His response is to believe in Jesus and to worship him. Now, if you're like the formerly blind man and you aren't certain that you believe in the Son of Man, here's what you do. You turn to the one who opened the eyes of the blind man. Ask Jesus for help. Ask Jesus for clarity. He's already helping you. If you're aware of and if you're concerned with your uncertainty, he's already brought you to that point. Because you wouldn't understand the importance of the question and you wouldn't care if you didn't believe the way that you think you should if Jesus were not already at work in you. Ask him in faith for help and he will surely grant it. Ask for help until you know until you know that you know that you know that your answer is yes, I believe. And then live every day, every hour, every minute of your life in light of that precious confession and give all the glory for that confession 
to God. Give him all the glory because whatever spiritual truths you've joined the saints throughout the ages in knowing and affirming, those truths were given specifically to you by God himself. So may Christ show you mercy and open your eyes that you may know what the saints throughout the ages have also known. That Christ alone is God incarnate. That Christ alone is Lord. That Christ alone is worth living for, believing in, and worshiping. And by God's grace, may we all continue to press on in knowing Jesus more fully until he calls us home. Let's pray. Our most precious, gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us what understanding we have of it. We acknowledge, Lord, that apart from your grace, we would remain lost in the darkness. And so we thank you that Christ has opened our eyes to see, to understand, and to know that he alone is God incarnate, that he alone is worthy of our praise, devotion, and affections. And yet we confess to you, Lord, that our praise and devotion and worship is so far from where it should be. But we thank you for the promise, for the assurance that by your grace, you will continue sanctifying us, growing us more and more in the image of Christ. Give us humble hearts and spirits toward that end, that we may be conformed to his likeness. And we pray that as we are, that the light of Christ would shine brightly in our lives for all around us, all who are around us, to see. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.